Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You're listening to a Roddenberry podcast. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Supplemental number 71, the one recapping Star Trek Voyager Season 1. Welcome into another supplemental episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Norman Lau. And I'm John Champion. And I'm Earl Green. Each week on Mission Log, hey guys, should I really be doing this part? Well, yeah. I mean, this is this is the part where you... If you're going to do this, tell people that we analyze every episode of Star Trek looking for the morals, meanings, and messages, if you, if you want to do that. Yeah, but, that, but that's not what we're doing today. Now, I mean, today, I mean, if, if Earl wants to, like, do this, uh, today mm-hmm. we're giving a brief overview of Voyager Season 1 and answering some of the listener comments and questions that have come in. Oh, cool. So I guess I don't actually need to do that part. Well, not anymore, at least, but I tell you what, you can kick us off with some uh, impressions of Voyager Season 1 in the podcast. And, and, and I know I didn't uh, warn you that you had to do impressions when you came on the show, so that, that's not exactly what I'm asking for. But Earl, you know, we love to check in with you because you hear our voices talking about Star Trek, honestly, more than anybody else. I mean, look, the audience, they have it hard enough that they listen to each show for, you know, an hour plus of us talking. You have to listen multiple times when you do the edit and make us sound, well, better than we would sound left to our own devices. <laughs> so uh, here we are at the end of the uh, the first season, the, the shortened season of Voyager. And um, we do have listener mail but i want to ask you earl was there anything in listening to us talk about voyager were you surprised by our takes our reactions do we kind of land where you thought we would just by knowing us and having heard us talk about ds9 for so long for the most part yes and y'all kind of lined up with my thinking on this my memories of voyager are really specific in that back when I was working in TV as a promo writer-producer. This was where my professional life started to intersect with my fandom, which, you know, now is an everyday reality for me. <laughs> right. But at the time, it was, kind of a, it was kind of a novelty, and I found myself looking at the show in kind of a different way, because now it was on our station, and it was my job to make people want to watch this, and then I would actually watch it, you know, because I was a fan of the show. And, you know, occasionally you would get to something like, you know, I don't want to say ex post facto, but let's go ahead and uh, you say it. ex it's, post facto. It's the phrase that pays. <laughs> you know, you would get to something like that, and you're like, oh, come on. You know, I, I asked people to tune in and watch this you are making mm. such a liar out of me. And, <laughs> and so, in a way, you know, I kind of started to take it personally if the show was, 
you know, kind of hit one of those little substandard stretches there. Yeah. Well, but but okay. But are, are you? Were you? Or have has have you always been the kind of Star Trek fan where you look at it and go like, okay, they're allowed a bomb or two here. They're allowed because bad Star Trek is still better than no Star Trek. I mean, did you justify it that way? Or did you feel like when ex post facto was new, are we just, are we going to get it out there? Is that collectively our least favorite episode of the season? Mm. Is that? Yeah. 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 It, it's, it's neck and neck with cathexis for me. Cathexis. I just never, uh, I didn't get why we were spending an hour of TV on that story. But wait, yeah, if you yeah, have if if, if you want to like double down on it, then you have cathexis post facto. That's <laughs> you're fired. Isn't that uh, even really need that? <laughs> it's, the, it's the greatest worst episode ever. Right? Cathexis to me was more just forgettable, whereas ex post facto was just an extreme failure at a style. It, it, it you know, it just it, there was no reason to go there, and a, and a failure of a character too. Let's face it. But Earl, back, back to that question. You know, yeah, an episode like that comes along. You're watching it in real time when those episodes are brand new. You assume, but you don't know that Voyager is going to go on for seven seasons. But then that comes along, and you're like, all right, okay, I'll do my job. I'll promote it. I will make it something. Hopefully, that people want to tune into. Because then hopefully there is more and better Star Trek to come after it. Is that yeah. fair? You always, yeah. you, every show, you always make it out like it is the entertainment extravaganza of the century. And well, then, we, we yeah. know that's not what that is. We know that's Battle of the Network Stars. But Who doesn't true. know that? But, really? yeah. Right? yeah, yeah. It, you know, I was, I was having to put the same amount of effort into... Um, what else was on UPN at the time? Platypus Man. Oh my god! <laughs> I remember that. Wow. Um, now you know. Once they got into season two and they had it on Monday nights with Nowhere Man, that was a great one-two punch. Nowhere Man with Bruce Greenwood, mm-hmm. later oh. Captain Pike of the uh, yeah. JJ Verse movies. The JJ movies. Yeah. Uh, that that was kind of where I met Bruce Greenwood, and so when they announced he was going to be Captain Pike, I was. Oh yeah, you know we're in good hands there. Uh, that was that was a good pairing, but yeah, you know it's like okay, Voyager's over. Here comes Platypus Man <laughs> coming soon to Mission Log in uh, 2047. That'll be the uh, the recap of Platypus Man. Mission Log Moesha. <laughs> I can't wait. Well, look, guys, so uh, we've pulled some comments uh, from our Discord, from Facebook, from emails that we've received. Some of these are grouped together generally in order of the season, but some are not. So forgive us ahead of time if we kind of get off track from that. But really, we're just going to take these sort of uh, uh, what we've got in the document here. And I'll, I'll read the first one just to kick off the conversation. This is a comment on Discord from Pax Federatic. And he says, Voyager has long been my least favorite of the live action series, which is actually the main reason why I've been looking forward uh, to following along with Mission Log's coverage. My main knock against Voyager has been that the writers and showrunners squandered an opportunity to really make this a Star Trek series unlike any other. Specifically, I thought they paid lip service to the idea of the crew becoming a close-knit family in their isolation, but that, for the most part, they seem to fall back on portraying them as run-of-the-mill Starfleet crew one too many times with the usual tropes. If not for the presence of Neelix and his galley, 
they might as well have been back in the alpha slash beta quadrant already. At least, that was what I took away from the series once its run ended. On this slow-motion rewatch slash follow-along, I'm looking forward to seeing if I judge the writers and showrunners too harshly the first time around. Hmm. So, did he judge the show writers and runners too harshly the first time around? I mean, again, we're only here the first season, but what I love about this uh, especially is that he is taking a series that wasn't a favorite, but because of the mission log format, because of kind of what we do here, decided, you know what? I'm a Star Trek fan first and foremost. I want to rewatch and see if I can gain something new out of it, which honestly is how we approach these shows too. You know, we've seen, with the exception of the bulk of DS9, I've seen everything multiple times, but trying to watch it new to go, ooh, even if there is a least favorite coming up, how do I take it? What do you think? I mean, we the first thing that we I guess we have to establish is is the critique or is the the comment based solely on what we're looking at from a first season point of view? Because you can levy it against mm. the entirety of the seven seasons of Voyager, what Pax is saying here, but the episodes are going to evolve over time, as are the different seasons, and they're going to evolve over time. As a matter of fact, I watched most of season one not too long ago maybe like a year ago and several episodes that i thought i would still be in favor of i'm not and that's only a mm. year ago right because i was yeah. i'm looking at things differently i think my initial impression of this first season is tempered by its first season itis which usually mm-hmm. happens uh, and trying to find your footing and also trying to figure out what the star trek brand is you know during this uh, Deep Space Nine slash Voyager era, two shows that are concurrently being, you know, produced and being released by, you know, the Star Trek machine in the mid 1990s to late 1990s, you're almost kind of like competing against yourself, which I don't really think is a good idea because sooner or later, yeah. one's going to rise to yeah. the top and one isn't. And I think at least where this was concerned, Deep Space Nine was rising to the top. But yeah. I think the only way that Voyager really would have been able to stake its claim in the way it needed to was to actually go off brand of being Star Trek and not play it safe. And that's where Mm -hmm. I think it's running into trouble because it's playing it maybe a little too safe because maybe Mm -hmm. Deep Space Nine is becoming a little bit more off brand, as I've said before in in my critiques of Deep Mm -hmm. Space Nine. If I've, after seeing all seven seasons of Voyager, which I have not yet, but if Mm -hmm. I think Voyager was to be the show I think it should have been. It should have been Battlestar Galactica because in that tone where basically the entire Delta Quadrant was chasing them back to the Alpha Quadrant, right? Yeah. So, and then obviously you would see not only the scars on the ship, but the scars on the crew as well because yeah. they are literally in like the most dangerous segment of space that the Federation has never known, which would yeah. bring its own peril and its own unknown terrors and horrors and allies and villains and things that you know you just don't get with you know gath or, you know? <laughs> you're saying i mean it does not bring you pleasure <laughs> some did some did not all but some did yeah no i i think you're right like it it's at once it's hard but it's also easy to judge just the first season here because you know we put ourselves into that position of what was this audience 
in the 90s with Star Trek, you know, the hugely popular next gen off the air, just off the air, DS9 going into its uh, fourth season. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but putting ourselves here and going, wow, we just came off of those two very big things. What does this look like then to an audience that is primed for more Star Trek? And does it feel like uh, is it playing it a little too safe, just kind of going back to the well? Does it indeed feel like, well, we, we've lost the mystery of what the Delta Quadrant is because now we're just sort of shaped back into a kind of run-of-the-mill Starfleet crew. I'm not saying that is necessarily my take on it. I do feel like there are places where in this first season they have definitely played it safe or just on very standard stories where they miss the opportunity to take hold of what is really unique about being the position that they are. Um, So, yeah, I mean, at, at, at the time, I guess I would feel like, well, at least even if this isn't my favorite show... I can still go revisit DS9. I can still wait for movies to come out because, of course, Next Gen was about to go make Generations. So there there was still enough to kind of keep me interested and then see what happens with this fresh new cast on Voyager. I mean, at this stage of the game, we were literally at the embarrassment of Rich's peak of Star Trek saturation, you know, all across media. I mean, you had all the Star Trek novels that were coming out to, to cover and, and to fill in kind of like the gaps, you know, in in that space. Then you had Star Trek Communicator, which was kind of filling the magazine, which was filling out the bridge between episode to episode. Uh, let's see. The licensing for toys was incredible. I mean, you could go to any toy store and those things would be, you know, four, five, six pegs deep on a rack <laughs> uh, and, you know, and uh, in demand. You know, a lot of that stuff was in demand. Yeah. So you had Hasbro and Galoob. I mean, they were making hand over fist money uh and it was yeah but to to some fans they were like this is just too much there's just too much to keep up i mean in comparison to like what's happening today it that was what's happening today in streaming is where we are right now where talking about you know voyager deep space nine in the movies exactly of course the the big difference is you know now a season is 10 or 12 episodes and then it was 26 you know we just happened to get the the shorter season here for the first one but well i I tell you what i I don't want to belabor this one too much because there's a lot of other good comments earl would you actually read for us the next one from jeff because jeff has a little bit different take jeff says i've been waiting for you guys to get here the amount of negativity that seems to have targeted this show i constantly find confusing and unwarranted I hope you give it a fair shake. I love all the treks for different reasons, but without question, Voyager is the most underrated of them all. Outstanding cast and characters, great vibe, great writing by a lot of great Trek writers, and I love all the two-parters. I never get tired of Voyager. Can't wait to hear the next seven seasons. Great. I mean, yeah. <laughs> that, that's that, that's pretty much that says it all. I mean, I, I, I feel the same excitement, Jeff, just because... For us, you know, every time we change series, that's something new and exciting. And I feel like Voyager has... I feel like this happens with all the Star Treks, though. Like, they get rediscovered a number of years later. You know, fans who maybe grew up with it, but then put it aside for a while, moved on to other things, they come back and rediscover the show that they liked, or they look at a show they maybe didn't like as much with fresh eyes... Or they're showing it to somebody 
for whom this is their first time. Showing it to you know a child or a relative or spouse or whomever. So I, I feel like, especially every time I go to a convention, there's this resurgence where where suddenly the attention will be on the show that. At the time, people felt like, oh, it didn't quite get as much love. Oh, this is the stepchild. It's not uh, – It's not. You know, but then the fans come out for it. Mm-hmm. They love it. I don't know about uh, the way it was you know, when Voyager first came out. I was really kind of like you know, divorced from Star Trek at the time. You know, I, I hit my saturation level and I went to other things. And, um, you know, re- reading kind of like these emails and then hearing kind of like mm-hmm. the stories of the how the tone was back then and kind of like the resistance to the first female captain, even though that this is Star Trek, the irony there is not lost on me. And there was, yeah, there was a little bit of resistance there. And uh, I think that there was maybe too much proving ground for Voyager to try and, and uh, get over, you know, with the fans because... I, I, for for you know reasons unknown only to those fans, but I'm glad that uh, in this new kind of um, this renaissance of Star Trek that m- m- these shows are getting kind of like their fair shake. You know, say Voyager and Enterprise, probably the two most maligned shows in Star Trek that I've seen of the Berman era. So it'll be interesting mm-hmm. to see like with the with the advent and the passage of time. There's a lot of forgiveness and a lot of that ire and kind of like the 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 attitude of the fans. Um, of that era may have just kind of, uh, you know, just may have died down and just kind of gotten just a little less, um, little less, uh, not as aggravated, I should say. There's something to be said about the value of hindsight here that in the moment, okay, so Earl, you're talking about ex post facto drops, you've got to come up with a promo for it. And for a week, you're just going like, oh, how do I take this that I am not excited about, not interested in, get people to tune in to watch it because that that is the job, right? All right, there's that. But then there's get clear to the other end of it. All seven seasons have run. You get to look back on it and go like, hey, you know, even for the bad episodes, there's something that attracts me to the show. It could be the cast. It could be the overall journey. It could be certain character arcs that got discovered along the way. You know, there, there are all these things that as a show grows and evolves. I mean, look at Discovery now. It, each season has been wildly different from the last which inevitably is going to make people look back at Discovery as a whole and go, ooh, you know what? I may have been really critical about this one season, but I really liked what they did over here. And because I like what they did over here, it made me appreciate the cast as a whole or the journey as a whole. I mean, I feel like those are just things that kind of naturally happen, you know? Also, you have to take into account that as different as Voyager was trying to be, there was also kind of an effort you know we were getting a ship-based show to replace next gen and mm-hmm. you know i i'm going to use this dreaded phrase jokingly you know <laughs> voyager really did start out 25 percent different from next gen and, and <laughs> not much more than that yeah right because right you e- e were trying to for those people who hadn't been captured by deep space nine you wanted mm-hmm. to keep those people you want to keep those people's eyeballs on your station, from my perspective. Right. And so I think the kind of soft launch was intentional. It, mm-hmm. You know, it got way more out there in later seasons. But I think that first season being kind of comparatively tame, uh, mm-hmm. I, I think that was baked into the cake. 
I'm actually uh, I'm going to read this next one uh, mainly Norm because mm-hmm. your name is mentioned in it a few times. Yeah. <laughs> so so I will present it to you and th- this actually is referring to an episode a little later in the first season run but that that's okay because uh, Phil here is talking about Voyager in general. So this is a Facebook comment from Philip And he says, so after listening to the podcast again, I think Norman hit the nail on the head on why I didn't rate Voyager when it first came out. I would wait impatiently for the new DS9 VHS tapes to be launched, but with Voyager after buying the first few episodes up to the 37s, I stopped buying them and focused on DS9 instead. And this is, as Norman says, the show is trying to be uh, uncontroversial and not offend anyone. When I dipped into later episodes of seasons one through three, I felt the same thing. DS9 took risks, and episodes like In the Pale Moonlight and Siege of AR-557 were powerful, and the blurring of right and wrong sparked debate throughout the series and years afterwards. Uh, We are still debating Moonlight today. With TOS, we are all still debating A Private Little War, and even TNG, we still have discussions about Chain of Command. Yesterday's Enterprise and The Inner Light, these shows provided us with thought-provoking episodes. As John says, even Spock's brain and Eden, we can pull out things to think about. Can we think of any Voyager episodes that have sparked a similar debate? One that we will still debate after 50 or 20 years. I found, as Norman says, this episode boring. I stopped following Voyager when it first came out because I found it boring with little character growth. Uh, Robert Beltran is criminally wasted in the whole show, and particularly in this episode. And as Norman says, Star Trek can be weird, cheesy, or as Ken would say, bonk bonk on the head, but it should never be boring. There's nothing here to pull out, and we all know what is coming in the future. We know that the writers, instead of examining the perils of heading home in a distant quadrant or examining the hostility between Starfleet and Maquis, they will continue to play it safe, and with a few exceptions, which make them stand out, Voyager will sadly continue down its vanilla path. Hmm. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I mean, I understand like what Philip's saying, and I just want to like um, I want to address a few things like specifically. So, when you're saying that you, we are having these conversations about the pale moonlight and siege of AR five five eight, and you know all of these controversial episodes, by your own admission, if you're not a fan of Voyager, you're not going to be participating in the conversations of Voyager episodes that are controversial because you don't care about them. So let's be let's you know be fair about yeah. that. Yeah, good point. Right, yeah. little little uh, selection bias. Exactly, yeah, and yeah, it's yeah, it's yeah. not like discounting yeah. the fact that the other episodes, like you're saying, like you know Moonlight and AR five five eight, you know Paper Moon, those are all incredible episodes for Deep Space Nine, and they're at the crux of like the Deep Space Nine debate, especially you know when we were talking about those, John. But mm. again, I think that if you are looking for something to discuss and you are looking at it in the way that we are looking at episodes and breaking episodes down, then you will be able to find something to be able to discuss because that's what you're looking for. Now, I'm not saying that Voyager is actually delivering on that in these first 15 episodes, certainly not with certain episodes. I do remember saying that the worst thing you can say about a Star Trek episode or any episode, any episode that you like is that it's boring because yeah. entertainment shouldn't be boring, right? That's, no, that's called entertainment. Yeah. Right. right. <laughs> it's right, not called right. I'm going to watch an episode of boring today. No, yeah. no one does that. Right. So, <laughs> right, right. Yeah. You know, I, I agree with the whole thing with the Starfleet Maquis relationship. And we, we've we've talked about that uh, between caretaker and learning curve. And 
and especially in learning curve, you know, where the coolest thing that ever happened to any of the Maquis was actually getting hit one of the, by one of their own officers. So <laughs> what does that tell you, right? Yeah. I, I mean, look, it, I, I think with all these early impressions of Voyager, we always find ourselves back in this place of what are the – you know, what are the desires of the production? And, and you're talking about the whole Star Trek office, you know, like from Rick Berman all the way down, trying to mold shows that then either capitalize on what they think the audience wants out of it, Star Trek. Ooh, well, they want to be on a ship. Well, but DS9 has its own thing going and people are responding to the uh, darker, more challenging storylines and deep dive character stuff we're doing there. So how do we then come up with another show that we think fits what the audience wants while at the same time being creative and giving our writers some license and, you know, all these factors go in. And sometimes when you have rule by committee, I, I feel like that's where you end up with the most vanilla, the most boring of of any of those uh, uh, episodes that might come up. But at the same time, I will say this, like looking back at our list here of first season Voyager, I have to say that in that 15 episodes, you know, look at what has been accomplished. I think this is probably the best pilot for Star Trek that I have seen so far. I think Caretaker does the least clunky job of getting the characters out there, letting us understand who they are and their relationships to each other right away, sets the premise right away, gives us the moral conundrum right away. Like, I, I think all of those things are firing on all cylinders. Then, unfortunately, you do this kind of slump where you have like, okay, we're in space. It's sort of by rote, a mysterious thing happens. But then there are highlights to be found in here. I mean, just by introducing the Vidians, having them in phage, having them come back in faces, there is this creepy, interesting idea behind who the Vidians are and what they're after. Eye of the Needle, I thought, absolutely nailed what is essential and different about Voyager, really drove home the heart of, of the series and the, the you know kind of emotional plight of what's going on. And then, look, we got to hand it to uh, Neelix. We got to hand it to Ethan here. When you land an episode like Chitrell, which they did, again, by design, you know, but they, they pulled it off. Like, I look at all these highlights. Oh, and, uh, and Emanations, you know, we, we had an episode there that actually had some deep thought behind it, some philosophical meat on the bone. There's good stuff there, but I feel like after that absolutely great opening, it just sort of immediately dips down into coasting <laughs> level. And then the season ender learning curve, of course, we all know the story there. It, it, that was not intended as the season ender, but it just didn't work. It didn't leave the audience with this sort of hunger to go, oh, I can't wait to see what happens next. So I, I don't think that whole first season is a write-off. I think there are definitely some highlights there. And certainly ex post facto, look, can't call it boring. We can call it a mess. We can call it a misstep. We can call it many, many things, but here we are still talking about it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, Earl, what do you think before we move on? I can't disagree with any of that. I also mm -hmm. think, you know, as far as the show going immediately into coasting mode, that was a fantastically expensive pilot to shoot, especially yeah. considering that they had to go back and reshoot a bunch of it because you right. had a bunch of men at UPN worrying about Kate's hairstyle. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And Unreal. so yeah. And so you've got to go book the LA Convention Center a second time. Yeah. Get the whole production out there again. You know, get all the permits, get all the extras, get all the costumes, get all the makeup. Yeah, they kind of had to slow down and do some ship-based stuff yeah. after that. And I really, I really kind of wonder, in hindsight, it, it, for those who were there at the time, how much of all of the turmoil behind the scenes leading up to the show's premiere, you know, everything from uh, Jean-Bierre Bujold on up to reshoots at the LA Convention Center. I wonder how much that colors their impression of what we got. Yeah. Yeah, could very well, honestly, you know. Oh, I tell you, let's uh, let's move on here and uh, a, a number of comments about phage. Norman, why don't you hit that first one there from Justin? All right, so Justin says, interesting comments so far, more negative than I expected. I don't think this episode is by any means amazing, but Janeway acts in a thoughtful and compassionate way when she could resort to violence to get Neelix's lungs back. The issue is resolved by coming from a place of understanding and empathy, a truly Star Trek message, and I think it pushes the this episode from meh to pretty good for me. I, I think that's fair. Like, I think about that episode the way that uh, I've had conversations with friend of the show, Matthew, producer of uh, Time Enough podcast, talking about the Twilight Zone. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Twilight Zone is one of those series. Well, well first of all, I, I, you know, their batting average for great episodes to not great episodes is extraordinary over the the entirety of its run but there are episodes of the twilight zone where you go okay we're just sort of getting through the 20 minutes of setup exposition kind of sitting here with the characters so we can get to the twist so we can get to the big moment but then that big moment actually is the huge payoff and i feel like phage is one of those where certainly Neelix has great moments. Certainly there's a lot of good stuff with him and the doctor and all that. But really what you're waiting for is that very powerful scene at the end. Mm -hmm. And that's what Justin has tapped into here is just like, okay, it could have been very run of the mill. It's Neelix's lungs instead of Spock's brain. But by having that speech at the end, by seeing all the levels of what Kate is playing in that scene, that elevates the episode for me. Just like it did uh, Justin here. I mean, I agree. I think that we have to be a little bit careful here, though, because without having that performance, without having Kate earn her paycheck for that episode, (laughs) take that away. Does the episode still hold? So that's what we really have to kind of like take a look at when it comes to, yes, the captain is very important. Yes, the lead actor, actress is very important, but also the writing and the pacing and the balance of the episode also has to be just as important because if any one of those elements uh, fails in any way or doesn't hold up their end of the bargain, at least you have two out of three, you know, stool legs holding up the bar stool, right? So you don't want any one of them to be automatically just say, oh, if the strongest leg fails, then it all fails. Because Phage is right at at that tipping point where if it weren't for that really incredible piece of writing and and, uh, performance by Kate at the end, then it's just kind of like a Boogeyman episode. And Boogeyman episodes Mm. are are just kind of like, yeah, again, they're fine. We're getting into this Mm. this situation where we're going to say like, yeah, the episode was fine. Yeah, the episode was good. Yeah, the episode was, you know, that was fine. And you don't want that. You know, as Star Trek fans, you want things to be able to hit you at that moral core, that moral center, which Kate does, you know, at the end of the episode. But my problem with Phage isn't what happens 
at that time. My problem with phage is the consequences that don't follow up later from that from that particular speech. You know, I will meet you with the deadliest force. Yeah, when we re-encounter them in uh, Faces. Right. It, it, they, they, they didn't find the payoff for that. Right, she tees yeah. up yeah. this wonderful, you know, um, this, this wonderful scene, the scene where it's like, okay, there's nothing that we can do about what just happened, right? And I, yeah. I think it's brilliant yeah. that, you know, you address a problem like that. Like, you just can't say, like, well, what about his lungs? Well, his lungs are gone. So you just can't focus on that. You got to focus on the future. How are we going to handle them later? And yeah. then when that happens... That's where I was disappointed in how this book ends this story. So we'll get to that in a second. Yeah, yeah. we will. We will. Just very quickly, uh, Jonathan, I'm, I'm skipping a, a comment also about phage, but I thought it was an interesting point. Jonathan said, in many ways, the Vidians are the Borg. Uh, they exist to consume everything around them, and it's hard to have sympathy for them. But then, you know, talking about how we actually do get a little more understanding of what motivates them. I think that's what, you know, made them a very interesting villain. It's too bad we didn't get more. But I, I do want to skip ahead here a little bit because I thought this one was a fascinating idea. And I definitely want to hear from our listeners about this one as well. This is a comment from Dennis uh, that was left on our Facebook page. And Dennis says, uh, talking about prime factors. This episode makes me think the crew of the Voyager should form a government. They are estimating 70 years to get home. A lot of decisions will have to be made in that time. Right now, Janeway is no longer captain. She is Queen Catherine, answering to no one. In future episodes, we will see that she serves as judge and jury, sentence crew to the brig, and handing out demotions. In this particular episode, a government could decide whether and with whom to negotiate Janeway's first priority is to get home, and as long as you do nothing immoral, following the book may be secondary. Wow. <laughs> what do you guys think about that? Forming a government on Voyager to supplant or at least maybe serve as a check or balance to uh, Janeway's authority as captain. This episode, Prime Factors, makes me think the crew of Voyager should form a government. They are a government. They are under the military rule of Starfleet, which means that J and we see this later on. Janeway says, my discipline, the Starfleet discipline, is as follows. She's the captain. She gets advised by her senior officers. But in the end, it's her decision-making process that is going to be either in favor of or against said issue of the time. That's, that's it, right? I mean, that's, there's no government here. There's no need to form a government here. There's, that's, the, that's the military of Starfleet. I'm not saying that I agreed with it. I'm saying that that's what we've learned to accept from Starfleet, right? I, I guess the, the difference is this. It's like everybody on that ship, uh, with the exception of the Maquis, but the Maquis are their own issue. And, of course, you know we've, we've dealt with them a little bit as well. But everybody on that ship is there on a voluntary basis you know they signed up for starfleet they signed up to be assigned to a ship now granted the circumstances here are extreme but every time we've checked in on a starship and the entirety of starship uh, star trek the circumstances are pretty extreme you know go from one week to another and there's somebody calling for a uh, you know self-destruct or uh, ramming speed or whatever and that is not the time that you turn to a government to make those decisions for you like that is the sole prerogative of the captain so are we just saying that well 
this one's different because they're farther away from home. Therefore, we supplant the hierarchy that we have and put in something else. Now, I think what's being proposed here is actually very interesting. And if you do get back to this sort of like, you know, the the Battlestar Galactica model of making Voyager like that. And of course, as we all know, that's one of the reasons that Ron Moore went off and made Battlestar Galactica. He saw the missed opportunities in Voyager and said, well, what if I go do this in this other context? And then you actually do have this interplay between the military and the government and you have civilians and you have all these different voices and all these different needs that need to be met also while facing the very real threat of the Cylons that are out there. Voyager is a little bit different. Um, It is a much smaller crew in a singular ship how much could they have explored that over the course of seven seasons? Well, I think it would be interesting to see people challenge Janeway's, some of Janeway's decision-making, some of her motivations. I think that's fine. And I I guess the question is, what level of authority do you give those people who would challenge her? Like you said, Norman, she has advisors. She goes to other people to get perspective. But at the end of the day, like, Everybody on that ship knows why they're there. They know how the hierarchy works. They know that you don't just decide one day, oh, we're not doing that anymore. <laughs> you know? What do, what do you think, Earl? Is that a show that you would watch? Is uh, the formation of the government on Voyager? Kind of going again back to the Voyager slotting in the, the gap left by Next Generation. I know a lot of uh, criticisms of Next Gen when it was on was... Uh, you know, you'd have scenes like in Q-Who, where, you know, the first time we run into a Borg cube, it kicks their butt. And, you know, Picard just quietly says, conference. I had a friend who just lost his mind <laughs> while watching that episode. Because, you know, he's like, no, no, you, you don't have a conference. You get the hell out of there. Yeah. <laughs> and I kind of think that maybe what we're running into here with Janeway laying down the law uh, it may be kind of a response to... Next Gen's tendency to, you know, do a conference call, you know, do a conference room scene, Mm -hmm. which, of course, Mm -hmm. you know, part of that is we have this set. Let's use it. Let's get some exposition out of the way. And, you know, Voyager has a a briefing room and, you know, that funky looking table that looks like, you know, you could play craps on it or something. Um, Yeah, love that table. You could, you know, you could roll some dice down that thing. Easy. The the tendency toward, you know, Janeway's word is law. Uh, I think Mm -hmm. we have a response here to, you know, Next Gen and its conference calls. And the other thing is, you know, 70 years, if it was longer than that, yeah, you have to get into generational ship thinking. But, you know, 70 years is still going to be within a lot of their lifetimes. And, of course, they're going to try to shorten that journey as well, which... Of course. Of course they did, because the show has to end within seven years. And so that kind of takes some of the edge off of, you know, Sam Beckett never leaped home. You know, you're not going to get that ending on this show. The more we talk about this, the more that I think that this really is a very kind of... DS9 question that we've dealt with uh, when we talked about the moments in Deep Space Nine where the problem gets that much bigger, where the stakes are that much higher, and our characters are faced with having to make 
very difficult decisions that are questionable morally, okay? And we would always come back on Mission Log and say, okay, look, here's the moment where Cisco or whomever, but primarily Cisco, faces the most difficult challenge. And the question is, what do I do? Do I compromise my values in order to achieve this particular goal that may be the better goal in the end? Or do I stick to the the safe route, the morally uh, respectable route, whatever, even though I may have worse consequences at the end of that? Okay, so here we are with Voyager. Again, we create an extreme circumstance. And the question really comes down to this. In that extreme circumstance, do we stick to the principles that we have? Do we stick to the the hierarchy? Do we stick to the command structure? Do we stick to the principle of our values and our beliefs in order to work together to get home? Or because it is such an extreme situation, is that when we abandon the principles, the hierarchy, the training, etc., all these other things that we know because we think that outcome may be better. Like that, that is the conundrum that we're facing here. And I, I, you know, for me, I, I think that they made the right decision as far as just letting Janeway be the captain, let the crew coalesce around her. That is one of the guiding ideas behind this whole series is do the values and principles that we say are important to Starfleet, do they still hold? when nobody's watching. I mean, that's what Janeway says you know. at the end of Caretaker. Like, specifically, mm-hmm. she said that we're going to get home, but we're going to get home the Starfleet way. I don't think that's actually really in question. I think mm-hmm. I think that the issue is in these first 15 episodes is that you had so much, like, set perfectly with Caretaker. You had Janeway saying that we're going to go home, but we're going to go home as explorers. We're going to go home under the auspices of how we have been trained by Starfleet to go out and, and boldly go and to seek and explore strange new worlds and new civilizations along the way. Obviously, with a couple of side missions here and there. you know. Uh, but the, the issue from there forward in these 15 episodes, or I should say, well, are we counting Caretaker as two or as one? Uh, counted as one. Okay, counted as one. So 14 episodes <laughs> yeah. later, what we're seeing is that we're seeing like these incredible inconsistencies of the parameters that were established at the end. We don't really have that hierarchy that's needed in order for Janeway to understand all of the different viewpoints because her first officer is so woefully lacking in terms of his development. Chakotay really is a linchpin for what could have happened in the first season because he is literally straddling the line of a very good Starfleet officer of which he is. And they have made example of that. And this Maquis officer for somewhere along the line of his Federation training, he decided to betray the uniform to be this other person and walk in this world. Now he is in this incredible position of being able to do both for the right reasons to get his people Mm. home and to understand that the Starfleet way is how he's going to get his people home. But without losing the individuality of why he decided to shed his Starfleet training and uniform because he felt like the principles of the Maquis were stronger. And now, since he's in this basically wild territory, the -hmm. principles of the Maquis may have served Starfleet better if they only allowed them to explore his character and that side of the equation better. 
Well, hey, we, in the interest of not overstaying our welcome, I'm going to uh, skip up a little bit here in the uh, in the comments that we've gotten. Uh, thank you for that, though, Dennis, because that's very provocative about the idea of them forming uh, government. Very quickly, I'll mention that uh, in our Discord, Tactical Officer Jesse commented on uh, some of the early Holland novel stuff that we get with uh, Captain Janeway in the uh, 19th century manor house and, and just says, calls it all very eye-roll-inducing for me and uh, I get it I yeah for for many many reasons this is a far cry as you point out from Dixon Hill where he's solving mysteries and and exercising his diplomatic skill and doing the things that are maybe more relevant to his duties on the Enterprise but hey that was the call that they made for the show uh, partly because it was a budget thing they they couldn't go do uh, what they had intended to do to have her on a uh, on a prairie you know what would be an even bigger budget-saving measure here What's would that? be to have Captain Janeway do a hollow novel where she's Mrs. Columbo. <laughs> My God, perfect. We just replay perfect. episodes of that. Hey, you just done. You just go back to the stock footage and you're, oh, do you know excellent. Be, do you know what would be even more amazing, Earl? And for all of you out there who are fans of 80s movies, if she played a captain in the U.S. military who is tracking down a secret kung fu asset for the cia i'm not going to mm. name names i'm just saying that that could have been a really good story a really cool story too so all right we got a lot of comments on faces i think we just hit a couple of them here, so. <laughs> so here we have uh greg who says uh this is a trim for time here what does this episode think about balana is she half human half klingon human with a bit of klingon or klingon with a bit of human from this episode i'd say the writers think she's the second human balana keeps the starfleet uniform in the engineering skills klingon balana gets a jumpsuit and the aggression if this episode really wanted to explore Milana's sense of identity, both of her should have been treated as equal parts. But Klingon Milana always comes across as a lesser component, even beyond human Milana's discussion of her experiences as a child. Both should have been dressed identically, if only as a visual shorthand. I can see what they were aiming at, but I feel this was a miss. Mm. Uh, Earl, you, you are nodding uh, in agreement. Faces is just kind of a, I don't know, it's a bit of a problematic episode for me in that it just, it treats the two halves of her so simplistically, so yeah. broadly. Each half is almost its own caricature. I think you would find in a situation like that there are more shades of gray, you know, more more gradation between, you know, Klingon side and human side. The, the issue with face with faces for me it's it's the whole all we need to do is insert the DNA back into Torres and she becomes Torres again or Balana again yeah that's not yeah. how it works like you, you're you're right. basically separated the component of Balana not just physically but also like mentally and emotionally from her mm-hmm. you know those are the parts as we referenced from say the enemy within those are the parts that make Balana, like decisive or angry or passionate, you know, or determined. Those are very integral to her decision-making process as the chief engineer and as somebody who these people depend on. They all have to be able to support each other and not just be chemically induced to be able to return her back to a Klingon physiology. That makes absolutely zero sense. Like it's like when Nomad like stripped Uhura of like her entire like intelligence. 
you just don't become like the officer of you know a Federation starship with everything that you've learned along the way retrained back in, back into your brain just because. Right. Yeah. That's that's too far of a reach. That's too big of an ask for a very intelligent audience of which Star Trek is to be able to try and accept. It, it's one of those episodes where at the end of the day, I feel like, OK, I absolutely get what you were going for, because we had the enemy within. We, we came up with a sci fi physical construct to then just get us to tell this story about duality. Like, that's fine. That's fine. You you know, so I I, I totally understand why in the writer's room they must have thought like, oh, this is a great way to explore the two sides of Milana. We'll do it literally. We will split her apart. But then the contrivance becomes just so much that uh, that raises far more questions than it actually answers uh, that they, they should have just had another transporter accident at that point. Let me move on a little bit from here just to say uh, uh, thanks to Alan who pointed out that they missed an opportunity uh, for Chakotay to do the whole Native American two wolves legend. Uh, and he quotes then uh, inside of us, there are two Balanas, <laughs> you know, the one that survives is the one you feed. Um, how could their cultural expert could possibly have missed that one? Uh, oh, we haven't even touched that. I don't think we should. Uh, uh, well, we mentioned it in one of the episodes about uh, how Jamake Highwater was not Jamake Highwater, and he was not a Native American expert. And yet, even after being exposed for the fraud that he was, the guy kept getting hired. So, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so there we are. Ryan uh, pointing out on the Mission Log website that, uh, Norman, you definitely right that it looked like uh, Roxanne was kind of struggling with the Klingon makeup and the teeth. And, the, you know, he pointed out some things about the performance that were just a little odd. At the same time, you know, they were trying to make Belana be uncomfortable in this new physiology that she has, but uh, just a, a lot of strange choices that were made in that one. John Cooley, Cooley. Says, <laughs> he says, I like that Star Trek can absolutely make me uncomfortable while still being thoroughly entertaining uh, that regarding... Uh, that regarding faces. Mm -hmm. So I want to move up here to Vredge, who wrote, I think this was on the website, maybe. Uh, I tell you what, Earl, why don't you read that one to us, and we'll, uh, we'll chime in. Too long didn't read principles are good, but leave room for exceptions in extreme cases. I totally agree with Norm here that some things are better than Federation pride. However, I gotta say that idea is at complete opposites with what John often says on the podcast whenever a Starfleet person goes against Federation ideals, namely that if you're willing to break your principles, they weren't your principles all along. I find that thinking too absolute, too rigid, and unbending in a practical sense. I agree that principles are very important, but they need to be constantly evaluated in the moment. In the series so far, the captain has a duty to bring the crew home, and yet won't bend some Federation rules to do just that? I find that's a failure of the system and a betrayal of the captain's duty to ensure the welfare of their crew. Don't get me started on the inflexible nature of the Prime Directive, or I will end up in a rant about how awful the TNG episode Homeward is. <laughs> You think this and I think, is this referencing uh, um, uh, prime prime factors. factors? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, certainly. Look, Reg, you are you are more than welcome to rant about Homeward. I, I think that is perfectly fine. You know, I, I think part of the situation with the prime factors, though, is that you also have Starfleet 
being responsible not just for Starfleet, not just for the people there, but also the people that they encounter. You know, that that is the whole point of the Prime Directive is like it's not just about us. It's not just about us making a mistake or what we gain or what we lose. It's we know that we have an effect just by showing up on somebody's doorstep. And that was a situation with those weird pleasure seekers on that weird planet uh, is that, you know, we don't know all the possible outcomes and there is partly the, uh, the respect shown towards somebody else's rules. I, I, I feel bad for Janeway being in that position. I, I get it. Like, yeah, she may be too inflexible to a fault, but then she loses the moral high ground by making a compromise that big. Tuvok recognized that. That's why he acted the way that he did. I, I think that's one of the reasons that that episode for all its flaws, is still a worthy episode, a worthy episode to discuss, because we do end up with that very good question at the end. Like, here's this thing that can practically be yours. You just have to violate a little bit of your principles to get there. But the faction that gave (laughs) them the technology... They violated their principles, so technically she wouldn't have violated hers because they violated theirs first. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I know. And, and, and that's, that, that's yeah. kind of like the whole um, – that's, that's the moral gray area, which I think makes this episode, again, like worth discussing because Janeway technically wouldn't have done anything wrong because the people on the other side of the equation did it wrong first. then two wrongs don't necessarily make a right, then you're going to Vulcan logic your way out of it by just saying like, Tuvok's like, I'll take the fall so that you don't have to. But I don't necessarily disagree with what they're offering me either. Right? So that's the thing. Like if Tuvok is supposed to tow the Starfleet line and his Janeway's, you know, confidants, you know, and kind of like her de facto number one without Chakotay really being there at all or being effective in any way, then that means that he does believe in what Starfleet's doing but believes it to a point, right? Until he doesn't. Mm-hmm. So is that how this works now? Right? <laughs> is that what this is being asked of us in this question from Fresh? Maybe, maybe. Uh, right. Maybe Fresh, you can follow up with us because, yeah. you know, it, we'll, we'll handle it on uh, on an episode of Engage, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Norm, why don't you read this uh, comment from Josh? On emanations. I'm glad because we haven't haven't talked about emanations yet. Right. Best episode of Voyager season one so far in my book, parentheses, actually the whole season so far has been stronger than I'd remember it being, end parentheses. The final scene between Janeway and Kim wasn't just the cherry on top of the sundae. It helped put the whole thing into perspective. That final scene also cemented my initial impression of Janeway as not being cut from the same cloth as Kirk, Picard, or even Cisco. And that's cool. I could maybe see Picard letting Kim decompress from his experience for a couple days after giving him the same speech about knowing so little about death naturally. But that's it. I'm, I'm glad for the shout out to Emanations because, yes, uh, up until that point, I think Jatrell probably is the strongest standalone episode to me in summary of the whole season uh, other than the pilot. I mean, the pilot is special because it is the pilot. But I think Emanations... It is so thought-provoking, and it didn't necessarily always go to the depth that I wanted it to, but it was a really good start getting there. Yeah. You know? It was so close. It so was. Close. It was so close. And mm-hmm. and again, like, like, put yourself in this position. You know, we have had 
the original series, the animated series, all of Next Gen, we're in the middle of DS9. So DS9 has not gone to the lengths that it will. Mm-hmm. And here you've got this episode in the middle of the first season of this new Star Trek series that is kind of amping up the the action and the mystery of being in this new place. And it's very ship-oriented, as, as, you know, definitely by design of the show. But here you stop. And you have this philosophical existential challenge to the audience about who these people are. Is there an afterlife? Are they right? Are they wrong? What becomes of it? It's just what a bold way to use that hour of time Mm -hmm. in the first season of your new show. And to be able to go there and then let the captain have that moment of personal connection with somebody in her crew. All these great moments that Janeway has had along the way in season one, I think you add them up, and that's why you can really make a case for her being such a strong captain, but also absolutely tying this crew together in this personal way that is very rare for what we've seen in Star Trek up until now. I think a lot of people undersell Garrett Wong's performance in Emanations. Mm. He is so good in that because he is straddling this fence between you know keep it together find what information you need to get home and holy bleep i am rocked back (laughs) on my heels by everything that is happening to me right now and it is emanations is one of those early episodes where you know i really got attached to that character in particular because of that performance I think, if I remember correctly, our biggest critique about Emanations is that it was just trying too much to do too many things. And there were really a lot of great ideas. And and one of the things that we um, we also I, – I do remember this was in my notes that I really kind of like applauded that they finally gave Chakotay something spiritual to discuss. Like he mm-hmm. really wanted to defend kind of like the graveyard of being a place where it shouldn't be touched or desecrated. Like, you know, you have sensors. They're called your eyes. Use those. You don't need like electronics for everything. <laughs> Uh, and, and and there's this larger discussion that was like outside in the community where we're talking about the transporter being an actual death machine, quote unquote, yeah. right? right? Where the uh, the pod that you know that uh, they use to transport uh, the, that the aliens use to transport their dead like from one space to another is a transporter. What ha- what mm-hmm. happened to Harry was he got transported basically just to another planet inside a very specific designated area, but it was still a molecular transporter. So mm-hmm. w- just think about if they went to a planet that has no idea of any of this technology and someone just appears out of thin air because of transporter effect. That's Arthur C. Clarke's third law, right? And even though they're not maybe technically thinking they're violating the prime directive, seeing someone vanish or appear out of thin air because they have mm-hmm. the technology, that's magic. That's yeah. influencing the entire society of believing, oh, my God, this is something like from our belief system out of the afterlife. But yeah. it's not. And that's like they were so close at like cracking that code in this episode. It's just I that know. they had too many storylines trying to crack the same code. Yeah. Right. That's what I like about it. I mean, it is one of those that also could be extended into a novel or I I don't know, may or may not have been compelling as a two-part episode if they had written it that way, uh, because I I think there's not enough of like a a cliffhanger to get us there for that. But the the ideas contained in that episode are so good. And and I know that we're going to come back to similar thematic 
territory in a few seasons. So I look forward to getting to that and then looking back on emanations uh, retrospectively. So look, let's uh, wrap it up today with a final email from Alex. And because that is addressed to both of us, I will ask Earl himself from the Earl Green Room to read that to us. Hi, John and Norman. I bit the bullet and signed up to the Mission Log Patreon. Yeah, first of all, thank you. (laughs) What I find interesting is John offhandedly critiqued the outfit of my favorite doctor, the Seventh, and used it as a point of comparison for Neelix. (laughs) Briefly, I will say that I like the Seventh Doctor because he is basically everything John seems to hate about Sisko turned up to Eleven. He's a manipulative trickster figure with great power who talks in riddles. He commits mass genocide and morosely angsts about how the cost of his soul is a price to pay for ridding the universe of evil. I think he's great. You'd hate him, particularly the books, which I love. Um, Which, (laughs) having covered those recently in Sci-Fi 5, yes, he is right on the money there. Where this is relevant is that the Seventh Doctor is literally self-aware. He is the destroyer of worlds manipulating from the shadows, so he dresses ridiculously to make people underestimate him. Neelix similarly acts the fool despite the darkness inside of him. Now, don't worry, Neelix isn't Time's champion or the emissary of the caretakers, but just based on the episodes you have seen so far, he is a lone con man struggling for survival by salvaging scrap. Voyager has arrived as a warship brimming with supplies, and he's just desperate to wedge himself into a niche that guarantees his survival and usefulness to the ship. He has also seen by now that the crew of Voyager are formidable if they detect a threat, so he dresses wacky and acts stupid, so he seems fun, entertaining, and, importantly, harmless. I've watched SF Debris reviews, so if you hate Neelix and want to call him colorful nicknames, I won't get precious, but like the Time Lord Doctor, his dress sense and odd behavior is, I think, a deliberate act to obfuscate his true intentions and feelings. He's the comedian telling jokes because he doesn't want anyone to know he's crying inside. I think that's why Neelix sometimes has outbursts. It's the internal anxiety boiling over because he feels like a stowaway who has conned his way into staying aboard and feels he could get kicked off at any moment. Also, genuinely, I love the characters of Voyager. When it comes up in later episodes and seasons, I'll voice my criticisms of the show when they are relevant, but the actors and the writers are so great. That said, I wish you would stop harping on about (laughs) deleting the logs. I didn't realize that the Roddenberry utopia you love abandoned privacy and the right to control what happens to your own data. It makes sense to me because I believe in a Starfleet that can be pragmatic in war, but I thought you and the Starfleet utopia believed in liberty and happiness, no matter the security risks that come as a result. I joke, but that question and the inconsistency of how it is answered is interesting to see across Star Trek. You might want to make note of privacy and security overreach in coming episodes. It's not a spoiler, as I don't think it's ever a plot point, but it might be fun to talk about. Well, that's a good one to end the show with, because <laughs> there's there's a lot there. And, and thank you very much, Alex, for writing that email. Man, I, I don't even know where to start, because there's a lot going on there. I, I do want to... Uh, let, let's go maybe from the bottom up, because you mentioned the thing about privacy and deleting logs, and I, I, I'm pretty sure that you're talking about uh, Cisco deleting his personal logs in, in the pale moonlight. And of course, we will always talk about that. 
but look, the, there are a few important distinctions and ideas we need to get across here. First of all, well, privacy in Star Trek, at least as we see it, uh, seems to be maybe not so great. Apparently, anybody can just walk into a room and say, computer, play personal logs of so-and-so. So those logs do not seem to be uh, off limits to anyone or certainly not to a commanding officer. There was those, an those episode the- of Voyager that someone, I can't remember which episode it was in this, but they did delete a log or... Well, yeah, uh, Janeway, at, at the top of one of the episodes, she's walking through and uh, hear the VO. Right. And then in real time, we see her deleting one of those logs. Right, right. And, and the funny thing to me about that is, is that, like, she said the quiet part out loud where where you you hear it as vo but she actually in real time says computer delete that log and it's like was anybody walking by you when you said that (laughs) you know it's just a regular thing so yeah of course people can record and delete whatever they want the question is well by doing that are you violating anything that is a more important principle i you know i will go back always to what I say about uh, Cisco in that moment, which is, okay, what is the first duty? If I were to talk to Picard, is the first duty to the truth, be it historical truth or personal truth? uh, Where truly do those principles hold sway for you? Because if you make a confession, but then you delete it, did you make a confession at all? There are always going to be degrees of importance when it comes to that. If it's something that is done to hide a potential crime, I think that's a much bigger deal than, uh, oh, I don't want to have a recording of you know, me making a white lie about somebody to protect their feelings. You know, that, that those are two very different things. My whole thing with like logs is like, if you're going to like, if you're, if this is part of like, kind of like your requirement of being like in Starfleet and you're required to do these logs, mm-hmm. of course there are the job logs, you know, which help people, you know, work out certain problems if those problems arise. But if you, if you're supposed to record logs, record them, right? You mm-hmm. know, like, and if you're not, don't. Like, you know, that's the thing. It's like if you're starting a log and all of a sudden it doesn't go the way you want, that's tough. That's on you, right? You know, you got to think yeah. about these things. And also, if that's your requirement as a Starfleet officer, you just don't get to pick and choose which rules and regulations that serve you best, yeah. right? I mean, right. Right. Yeah. aren't these logs supposed to be able to be downloaded and then kind of like disseminated and reviewed so that there may be information that military intelligence or Starfleet intelligence says, hey... I know that that's probably not the best thing for you to have done, but that gave us vast intelligence on how to maybe address something like later in the future. That These are like your daily, it's like your diary. If you don't want it in your diary, yeah. don't put it in there to begin with, right? But if you do, that's on you, right? So I mean, look, it's very interesting right now that we're dealing with a situation as of the recording of this. And not to get too political here, but but let's just talk about the reality of the situation is that you have people who are being investigated by the U.S. Congress at the moment, mm-hmm. okay? And part of the argument by the people who don't want to be investigated is, but it's private. You know, the, this is information that was on my cell phone, my personal cell phone, or in my personal email, or my personal records, whatever the case may be. All right. First of all, there is an argument to be made about doing official business on your personal equipment. We've been down that road before. But the other part of it is this. It's like, 
once that information is indicative of a crime or the cover-up of a crime, you lose those rights to privacy for that information, you know, and uh, this applies to other situations as well when you have um, – you know, like uh, uh, attorney-client privilege or uh, doctor-patient uh, uh, privacy. Some of those things, actually, th- there are places baked into those that allow them to be relaxed, particularly and especially and only when you're dealing with either prevention of a crime or investigation of a crime. So, yeah, privacy is outrageously important, and I wouldn't uh, give the impression that it isn't. What we have particularly with the Cisco thing is, uh, all right, I recorded something and then I deleted it because I knew it would get me in trouble. If you knew it would get you in trouble, you probably did the wrong thing. <laughs> you know. Also, so, when it comes to like yeah. politicians and what you're talking about, they are public yeah. servants, not private servants. Uh, very true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. And, you know, uh, uh, Cisco serves at the will of Starfleet. You know, he has to answer to Starfleet. He has to answer to the oaths that he took to be in the position that he is in. Not if you delete Um, your evidence, you don't. No. (laughs) (laughs) But, hey, I do want to talk about the Doctor Who thing really quickly and as it applies to Neelix. And we have our own Doctor Who expert in the room with us at the moment. Uh, Alex is absolutely 100% right about the character of the seventh doctor. And, uh, you know, that may or may not have been a good choice for me to make that comparison to, uh, to Neelix. To me, seeing the evolution of the character over time, it's like at a certain point, Doctor Who, the doctor, stops being a character and starts being a part of a franchise. And at, just as Star Trek, it stops being a show and it becomes a franchise. And there are all these elements that kind of fit within that. And because of that, there are certain expectations. What do the characters look like? What do they act like? What is this world that they operate in? You know, So you take a character like the Doctor, and at first he's, you know, quirky. He's the quirky grandpa. And, you know, then he's uh, the flute playing tartan wearing impish <laughs> you know, doctor and then he's kind of the cool james bond with the frilly ruffled shirt and i really like that shirt that john mm-hmm. Pertwee had and then and the looks become very distinctive and, and they are part of the character and the character drives our belief of why they are dressed the way that they are right at a certain point though and i think this is partly because of the huge popularity of a doctor like tom baker the look is equally important to the characterization of that character. So you fast forward a bit and you get into the Peter Davison era and the Sylvester McCoy era. And by the way, I apologize to all of our Star Trek listeners who now just got a dose of of Doctor Who. But to me, there's a certain point where it kind of changes. And when you start introducing question marks on the actual costume, it's like, okay, then it is the show pointing out to the viewers, look, you are watching a show in which this character is a mystery. We, we, we don't call him Doctor Who. We call him the Doctor. But the show you're watching is Doctor Who. And look, there's a big question mark here to drive that home. It's a weird graying of that area between the production 
and the reality of the situation that the characters are in. So that that's the point that I was trying to make there. And, and things like that take me out of it. Not to take away from Sylvester McCoy, who I think is awesome. It's not to take away from the change that that character took going from the kind of, you know, bumbling comedic doctor into something much more dark, whether that was a retcon or that was there from day one. So be it. They, they went in a totally different direction with him. Ultimately, let me bring that back to Neelix real quick. I love, love, love that we got these deeper, darker, heavier character moments out of Neelix because absolutely that helps to inform my impression of the character now going forward. Love what we got out of him and Jatrell fascinating stuff. At the same time, I feel like on paper from the very beginning, what we got was this almost kind of clownish makeup and a costume that just telegraphs to the audience, this is the comedic relief. This is the comedy relief of the show. Keep an eye on this guy because he might do something funny. But I'm glad that the writers and the, the actor pulled it off beautifully. I'm glad that the writers decided to go there and give him more depth than just that. Of course. It's still a bit of a big ask for me when I feel like the production is breaking that fourth wall and telling the audience how to respond to a character purely because of the visual. But, you know, guys, I'm, I'm ranting here a little bit, but I wanted to make sure that what I was saying was, uh, was clear and understood. Uh, we, our Doctor Who resident uh, expert here, uh, please feel free to speak up. I think with uh, Doctor Who in the 80s, a lot of the problem you were running into, uh, the because unusually the show had a one showrunner for that whole decade, and he believed very much in, uh, in his words, marketable images. And so that's why you had the uh-huh. companions almost, you know, in uniforms rather than... <clears throat> You know, changing into practical clothes that met the need of the story. You know, Nissa was always in that velvet outfit, even if she was going to be baking in the desert somewhere. Mm-hmm. You know, Tegan, you know, her first year on the show, she was always wearing the uh, stewardess outfit. Mm-hmm. And so it wasn't just the doctor, it was, you know, all the characters had this very identifiable image. And even later, you know, once you had characters who did change clothes, you had characters like Nicola Bryant's character who was always kind of in a variation of the same silhouette, no matter how incredibly impractical it was. And, you know, with the question marks, you know, again, that was about the marketable image. You know, I think they wanted to uh, merchandise stuff. Yeah, <laughs> he says as he holds up his Doctor Who umbrella. I mean, that started um, off. That didn't even yeah. start off with Sylvester. I mean, the uh, the there were yeah. question marks on Tom Baker's lapels in the at the end of his seventh season. You know, when he went yeah, to the yeah, that's uniform. when John Nathan Turner took over as showrunner. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah, and, and that's the kind of and, and like, look, I I realize that it may sound like splitting hairs because in Star Trek we're in this world where okay, the ships have a certain look, which is also marketable, and the uniforms like. Obviously, as Star Trek fans, we're always looking at those things uh, to define who the characters are and and our understanding of our relationship to them and their relationship to each other. I I, 100% I get that. But there is sort of an assumed reality 
about those in that environment. Neelix is a special case. I mean, that's the only way that I can put it. It's a special case where you have an alien who, uh, rather than, you know, a Klingon covered in armor to show you that they are vicious warriors, you have the character who is designed to be clownish. And it, that was a break for Star Trek in that way to make him front and center, make him part of the, the regular cast. But you're, you're constantly showing the audience again, like, here's the funny guy. Thank goodness they gave him the opportunity to stretch and show some real depth this early on. Like, if we had had an episode like Chitrell and it was coming up on the sixth or seventh season, it would have been like, oh, could we not have gotten to this sooner mm-hmm. <laughs> to give us, you know, some uh, some some weight to this character? So I'm glad that they did it. But I, I'm sorry, the costume and makeup will continue to drive me crazy. Okay. Well, I mean, I... To be fair, when when the the cast of Voyager was put on the covers of, say, Star Trek Communicator, mm-hmm. I'll be the first one to admit that I'm like, this is the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen, even for Star Trek. You know, like just yeah. the close yeah. upon like the the lizard lion head. I think that's what people yeah. would call him, right? Back then, and that's probably one of the reasons why I was like, you know what, I'm just done. I'm done watching yeah. this because they're like, this is this is their idea of originality. And it's not their issue. It's my issue. Like, it was just me running up against a wall of, I just don't really want to watch it anymore. I just don't want to. And, and I can point fingers and say, like, that's the reason why or that's the reason why. The reason is what it, is, it was ever my hang up. Like, I have to take responsibility of why I didn't want to watch it. It's not sure, anyone else's sure, fault. Yeah. It's not the fault of the production. It's not the fault of the designers. That all being yeah. said, there is a kind of like a balance that you have to strike. And, and maybe, you know, uh, someone should have asked, like, is this going a little too far with five different patterns on an alien race that already has like a mohawk and lizard spot? <laughs> and wackiness and all that kind of stuff because sometimes you just may just push it just a little too far in one direction and you'll be like no we love it but we haven't done any focus groups on it it'll be fine yeah right 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 Right? right. until it's not and then we have this conversation but you're right if it weren't for jatrell neelix's trajectory right now in our opinion would be vastly different yeah yeah absolutely absolutely yeah uh, well, guys, I mean, that, that uh, obviously we get tons of uh, comments and email and uh, folks keep those coming, please, whether it's on Facebook or Twitter or on the Mission Log website, missionlogpodcast.com. If you haven't yet signed up for our Patreon, uh, people ask, how do I join the Discord? Well, Discord is part of our Patreon benefits and services. So patreon.com slash mission log, and you will in very short order get an uh, invitation to our Discord where the conversation continues. And uh, we'll check in like this every now and then. We also do uh, Mission Log Engage at youtube.com slash Prod, So you can find us there. And we'll do kind of more more one-on-one discussion and dissection of these comments. Um, Guys, glad we got to do this. Um, I I didn't ask you both, like, uh, any other thing before we wrap up here, like a, a, a last impression of season one of Voyager? I think, John, that you and I... If I have to critique you for one thing, though, this entire first 15 episodes, please, I think that maybe it's because Voyager is so new, but I would really like for a, a, a solid return to critiquing the food in, Ooh, in season yeah. two. We've, we've seemed to have gotten a lot lost on what is that? You know, is that a star fruit? Is that a jackfruit? Is that pudding? Yeah. Is that hospirat? Yeah. Is it not hospirat? So yeah, I, yeah. I, I would like for us to, to return to that form. 
Note taken. Thank you, sir. Right. And uh, and Earl? You know, going back and, you know, listening to you guys go through season one of Voyager, I am struck by, at the time, it may not have impressed me in this way. It, it's such a delicate tightrope walk between we've got to keep the next-gen people happy because they just lost their show, mm-hmm. and we have a more sophisticated audience over there watching Deep Space Nine. We also want them to join us. I, at the time, I'm not sure I really appreciated that balancing act that they were pulling off with the first season. And, you know, they would find their footing, and each show finds its footing more assuredly as it goes on. But really, the the batting average on the first season is not bad at all. I mean, if if the worst thing you could say about it is Cathexis post facto... <laughs> Um, and you know, that's, that's two out of 15. Mm -hmm. That's, uh, that's not too bad at all. All right, guys. Well, I look forward to uh, continuing the journey in season two and beyond. We'll do this again. Some of the music for mission log provided by warp 11 online at warp 11.com. Special thanks to consulting producers, Adam Brusky, Matt Esposito, Homer Frizzell, John Mann, Mike Richards, and Mike Shabel. This is a Roddenberry Podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.